Welcome to Close Worse. Definitely, definitely not the only podcast with bodysuit-related trauma out there. I, ju- I just know it, that plenty of podcasts out there have have a bad story involving a bodysuit. <laughs> Perhaps you do too. I'm your host, Amanda, and this is episode 136. By now, you should know that I never believe that it is just clothes or just fashion. We spend a lot of time around here talking about how the fashion industry has a massive impact on the planet and its people. And I th- I think by now, I hope, no one is going to argue with us about that. But if they do, we have plenty of arguments and data to persuade them otherwise. But the mere clothing we wear has such a significant impact on our mental health, our comfort, our feelings of fitting in or standing out, our general well-being. And even people, and I have some of these people in my life, who say that they don't care about clothes or what they wear, well, they do have favorite outfits, garments, items that make them feel their best. Even if their idea of best is just flying under the radar or being really cozy, clothing is a big deal. And that, that is why it is such a massive industry. Yes, we need clothes to shelter us from the elements, to keep us warm, to protect us from the sun and wind and bees and whatever else. But clothing wouldn't be a big moneymaker, the billions of dollars juggernaut that it is, if clothing wasn't an important part of personal self-expression and our sense of self. Otherwise, we would just grab stuff off the ground and drape it over ourselves, which does sound like it could generate some really great outfits. But in general, people care so much about what they wear. And that's that's what today's episode is all about. I am so excited about today's guest. Okay, I realize that I probably say that every episode about every guest, but I think I'm just a really excited person. And today you're going to get to meet Maggie, the Chief Everything Officer of Maggie Green Style. She's going to do a great job of telling you what she does and how she does it. So I'm not even going to bother to explain that to you. Just wait. You'll learn it in a few minutes. We're going to talk about the difference between style and big fashion. And Maggie is an expert in the realm of wardrobe and shopping trauma, and she's going to break it down for us. I I promise that so many of you are going to be nodding your heads as you listen to this conversation, saying, yes, I, I feel seen. Our conversation is so personal and so intense at times that I wanted it to stand alone in this episode. I had I had planned a big segment about the fashion media and how it promotes greenwashing. It's a really good segment. But I'm going to move that to next week's episode where, to be honest, it, it makes a lot more sense anyway. <laughs> Maggie and I are going to be talking about some really personal stuff today including our own shopping and wardrobe trauma. We're also going to be exploring the roots of our wardrobe trauma, which unfortunately begins in our childhoods with some really not great adults in our lives and some really not great peers. We won't be talking about abuse per se, but this conversation could be triggering for some. So 
If that's something that seems like something you don't need to hear today, skip this episode. There'll be another one next week, and it's totally about greenwashing. Okay, with all of that, let's jump right in. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to everybody? Hi, everyone. My name is Maggie Green, and I am the Chief Everything Officer of Maggie Green Style, which I describe as a one-woman band on a mission to transform how you see yourself. I love that. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I work with leaders, entrepreneurs, aspiring versions of both, as well as individual contributors to create visibility for themselves in work, in life, and in play. Amazing. I mean, as we're going to talk about ad nauseum today, mm -hmm. clothes, whether you like it or not, are very powerful and important. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> they are, right? Uh, even if you say you're not a style person, even if you say you don't care about clothes, I guarantee you do care about what you wear and how it makes you feel when you wear it. So we're going to talk all about that today. So Maggie, I get a lot of people on the podcast, myself included, who kind of just ended up working in fashion or working with clothes. Other people, they were born for it. Like they came out of the womb with like a pair of like scissors for fabric, scissors that could <laughs> only be used on fabric. But the majority of people who come on the show are kind of like, no, I actually never saw this for myself. So I'm wondering for you, were you always thinking you were going to grow up and help people get dressed? I mean, the, the short answer is no. Um, it's interesting you mentioned that analogy, like from the womb. I can definitely recall like that early having like an affinity for clothing, shoes and accessories. I mean, I've always been obsessed with style. Um, but yeah, it was not until well into my 30s that I thought it might be something that I could do on a professional level. Um, yeah, it was kind of a pipe dream, a little fantasy of mine, I think, before that. But <laughs> yeah, uh, wasn't in the cards, or at least I didn't think it was. Yeah, I can hear that because I definitely, in the same way, remember being very young and being very into clothes and shoes and jewelry and the entire, the entire act of building what you were going to wear that day. You know, like it was, I can remember it as early as first or second grade being really engaged with that but the idea of working in fashion just seemed like a total impossibility as a person living in a small town you know coming from literally no money like negative money like debt versus any money in the checking account right it just mm -hmm. seemed like that was a life for other people people who maybe had been on a yacht or <laughs> went to finishing school or something <laughs> yeah I, I i feel you on that um Likewise, I grew up in a small town. I'm from the rural south. And, you know, fashion just wasn't a thing that people even related to, let alone, mm -hmm. like, you know, a, a possible possibility for career. Um, we, we grew up really poor as well. Um, in fact, I recall at one point we lived in a housing project and they actually paid us like 18 months, 18 bucks a month to live there. Um, so yeah, I, I feel you wow. on extremely limited resources. Um, I also feel you on 
you know, thinking about what outfits to wear, like the first day of school outfit was always just really iconic. You know, so I would important. Spend days. Yeah. Yes. yes. The entire school year was going to be defined by what you wore that first day. That's right. Yes. It's super important. And picture day is a whole other level. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. (laughs) Not the same outfit, though. Like, you wouldn't wear your first day of school outfit for picture day. Like, totally different, you know? Um, Yes. I mean, I remember, you know, we didn't get a ton of school clothes. We just didn't have those means. But my grandma would always take me shopping for some school clothes in, like, late July. And on that day, that's when I would settle on what that first day of school outfit was going to be. And it would hang fully assembled with all accoutrement in the closet, like the very front, so that I could open it every day and get myself hyped about wearing these clothes. <laughs> I, I literally, like, I feel so seen right now. <laughs> like, I don't think I've ever heard another soul describe, like, that relationship with that outfit, that first day outfit and like admiring it and curating it. And like weeks in advance, you knew, right? Like it was yeah. so important. <laughs> yeah. Same. <laughs> no matter what the weather was on the first day of school, there was no adjustment. This is what you were wearing, right? Yes. Right. So there were many first days of school where I was incredibly sweaty or cold, depending on what that outfit ended up being. More often than not, it was sweaty because it was always like more fall type clothing. But it, like in Pennsylvania, it's still pretty hot at the end of August, you know? Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter. The outfit was important. That's right. <laughs> yes. So you told me when we were preparing for this that, you know, there was one job in the fashion industry that you kind of let yourself fantasize about having, which was writing product descriptions for Jay Peterman. <laughs> yes. Very <laughs> Al- Elaine Venice from very, Seinfeld. Very, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I was thinking about that earlier today because, you know, like, I don't even know, is the Jay Peterman catalog around anymore? Probably. Probably. Yeah, I- I don't think it's in print anymore. Sad. It's 2022 and everything's digital first now, but I do right. still see social posts from them and it's that same iconic format. It's just like we're looking at a pea coat and we know it's a pea coat, but there's this <laughs> like two and a half pages of story and there's, you know, um, this specific context and setting and it's all about the feelings and like, yeah, um, I just was so turned on by that. I've always loved writing, and mm-hmm. I thought, you know, maybe maybe that was a way that I could kind of combine my obsession with style and my affinity for writing. Um, it didn't work out that way, and in <laughs> retrospect, I, I'm laughing because you know, this was me at like 14, 15 years old, and I thought in that moment that was that was really shooting for the stars. Like that's the best that I could do. Uh (laughs) I mean, to be fair, that's pretty top notch. And I do (laughs) think like, while I might not be super into the Jay Peterman clothing aesthetic, like I do as a person for whom the clothing I wear is actually a really big deal and a really major player in how I'm going to feel each day. Mm -hmm. uh, I really appreciate the idea of narrative around the things we wear. 
and you know, in the era of like we're launching, you know, like 500 new products every week, and the copy is just like imported or <laughs> waist yes. 28 on a small model is 510 imported 100% polyester like that's the kind uh-huh. of product copy we get now on a lot of these websites primarily because you know it's like it's all about getting as much product live on the site that the era of flowery copy is over and more importantly like unfortunately what I've discovered in my career is that nobody reads any of it <laughs> so yeah. I get it but I do think that like the there is something that has been lost in terms of like creating a story and an emotional relationship with the things that you buy and wear. And it's really hard to fall in love and develop a deep attachment to something that says 34 inch inseam imported 50% I don't 50% cotton. You know what I mean? Like it's just mm-hmm. cool. Wow can't wait to wear whatever that garment is <laughs> right yes yes <laughs> so okay why why didn't you go into fashion or clothing something adjacent earlier i honestly did not feel it was accessible to me mm-hmm. it seemed so far removed and far from my reach like so socially speaking, culturally speaking, I just did not feel like it was a fit. So there was that aspect, but there was also, you know, I'm a, a first generation college student, a first generation homeowner. So I didn't have any models, right, mm-hmm. for career path. And when I started thinking about school and what I might want to do, um, the immediate priorities were like practical in nature, like how totally. can I survive? How can I make sure the bills are paid, you know, and not end up homeless? Um, how can I afford to have the wardrobe of my dreams? Like what's going to give me stability so that I can keep myself in clothes that I want? Um, yeah. And I mean, on top of that, I, I grew up in a highly dysfunctional, toxic, abusive environment that just was not conducive to exploring at least on any deep level like my creative desires Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, in fact when it came to fashion there was a bit of well a considerable amount of discouragement and you know I did I describe it as like trying to tamp out a fire like the first day of school uh, you know the first outfit of the year just like created this passion you know mm-hmm. and in trying to express it I was immediately met with criticism and you know so when I when I say it wasn't accessible it just it was there were so many barriers between myself and what I wanted that I just went a totally different direction um, the direction that I thought again would offer stability and it wasn't as much of a priority to have like that kind of creative turn on aspect. Um, I didn't give myself permission to do that until much later. Yeah. I mean, I like hearing you talk. I just see so much of my, my childhood, uh, my teen years reflected, you know, it's, it's, I felt as if dreaming was really discouraged 
and it was just sort of like like I don't know how it was for you growing up, but for me it was like the expectation that was that the moment I hit adulthood I was expected to move out and care for myself because I'd been such a burden for too long. You know, mm-hmm. and so it was sort of like what what can I do that will be practical? Like for me, I basically went to college so that I wouldn't be a burden on my family anymore. I mean, also so I could get out of there and be as far away as possible. I can look back and as you were talking, like remember all the times I was really discouraged from thinking about what I wore or caring about it or told that I was basically like an, like an idiot for caring. Yeah. And it, you know, people who are not like us, who don't have that relationship with clothing and that, um, just interest, creative, um, you know, propensity, I guess, for style and personal expression, they don't get it. And they see the idea, you know, I mean, of course, in an abusive environment, it didn't matter what I was talking about. It was like, <laughs> whatever you're interested in, yeah, like, exactly. I'm going <laughs> to criticize you for, you know, I'm going to try to take that away from you. But yeah, yeah, definitely. Think, it could have been and, music. It could have been, yeah. you could have been really into science and mm-hmm. it would have been squashed. But, you know, as far as style and fashion go, like, I think a lot of people see it as this kind of two-dimensional, like, really superficial, um, I don't know, like, it's it's even more than a privilege. It's just like this, yeah, um, like I said, superficial, um, luxury, maybe, Mm -hmm. it's not important. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's... It's materialistic. That was so. I mean, I I am completely estranged from my mom. I haven't spoken to her in like two and a half years now, and it was the best decision I ever made for my mental health. Although I wouldn't have guessed that, Mm -hmm. and because you know, like relationships with mothers are really complicated, and you feel as though you're supposed to, no matter what, take what you get from this person because you owe your life to them, right? And the thing that my mom would always paint me as, as both a kid, because I cared about clothes, and as an adult who actually accidentally ended up working in that industry, is that no matter what I did in my personal life or career, no matter what I achieved or the things I learned or the good things I did for other people and the world around me, it didn't matter because my interest in clothing made me shallow and materialistic and my life sort of meaningless. And this, even as an adult, was really being pushed my way that my job, which was ultimately like has made me whatever this means, like, you know, the most financially successful person in my mother's family, right? Mm -hmm. Which certainly involved a lot of hard work and learning and experience and skill on my part was always just dismissed as this dumb, stupid thing that I was doing that just was like made me a bad materialistic person. I hate, I hate that for you. Um. <laughs> I hate it for me too. I mean, listen, I get that a lot of people who th- thought for a long time that as a buyer I went shopping for a living and really what I was doing was like really elaborate critical thinking like every day <laughs> that mm-hmm. somehow involved clothes a little bit. Um But I do think that that's the idea out there, that if you care about how you look, it's almost like if you show up in an outfit that looks like too much effort went into it, you're automatically like 
a very shallow, uninteresting person. I completely disagree, but yeah. I, I've gotten that pushback from people before, socially even, you know? Yeah. I would say in my experience, it was anytime I tried to achieve something or like lean into that, which was uniquely me, which of course was not in alignment with, again, what was modeled before me. Um, I didn't have peers, right? In my family, I was kind of the black sheep. It was every time I explored that or expressed that to any degree, there was this accusation or kind of implication that I thought that I was better. Um, <gasps> I knew okay. that was yeah. coming because this is what I would always hear. That word better, that I mm -hmm. thought I was better. Yes. Um, and thinking of like some of the, you know, core memories, right? In my most formative years, I remember my maternal grandmother, like I, I heard her say this in other contexts, but then it was handed down, right? I heard it from my mom when she was speaking to me and other relatives. Um, my mom's sister, who I uh, refer to as my primary abuser, it was this idea of like, you can't get above your raisins. Not raisins like dehydrated grapes, but like... <laughs> This. I thought raisins too, the, the <laughs> nature's candy. Uh yeah. <laughs> like you're stuck here. Like <sighs> you, you're part of this cycle and there's no way out of it. And to think that you might be able to transcend that barrier at any point is like number one to leave us behind. And how could you even conceive of that? Right. After everything we've done for you, like, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was like a, a a personal affront to them. Like I was trying to do something different and better because I thought that they weren't good enough. Uh, it's creepy. It's really messed up. It is really messed up. But I feel like you're you're speaking about my life. I mean, I think definitely mm -hmm. for me, like moving away, going to school, traveling, living in different places, having a career, it made me the black sheep of my family. Like I on my mother's side, like no one, no one cares about me or communicates with me or had any interest in seeing me. I would come home to visit for the holidays. My airport is about two hours away from my mom's house and no one would even come and pick me up from the airport. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I'd get to my mom's house and there wouldn't be any food there for me to eat. She'd be like, well, now you need to go to the grocery store now that you're here. Like it was always very, very strange and very, I, th I thought maybe that's how all other families were, too, that they, once their kids were grown up, they just didn't, I mean, I didn't matter when I was a kid either, but at least they were required by law to make me matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought that's maybe how a lot of families were. And as I got older and interacted with other people and had more serious relationships with people, whether they were friendly or romantic, and I met their families and saw them interact, I was like, oh, wait, people love people they're related to? and do kind things for them and are excited to see them and are proud of them. And that's just not what my experience has been, you know, that like somehow I was by going off and I don't know, like living my life to the fullest or trying to, I was an affront to everybody in my family. I, I just, I feel so much empathy. And just as you're saying, like, of course, we, we have a lot in common. When you mentioned the 
the empty fridge. Like, I can't say, I mean, there were definitely times when I experienced, our family experienced food scarcity, but like thinking about your own family dynamic and then you, you get exposed to other dynamics and you're like, okay, this is different. Like one thing that occurred to me is snacks. Like kids are just allowed to have like open access to the snack cabinet at any time. Like, I mean, imagine my mind. (laughs) What do you mean? Can I have anything? Are you serious? Are you sure I'm worthy? You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely noticed that in elementary school. My best friend, Kara, was an only child. And there were tons of snacks and cereals and all sorts of things for after school consumption. And my mom kind of low key did not want me to keep going there after school because I think she thought I was filling me with my head with ideas about access to snacks. (laughs) right like the horror oh my god the horror yeah exactly exactly (laughs) i mean all this to say that you and i are both very passionate about style and we both agree that it's really important and even though people think style and fashion are the same thing you and i as people who are very into what we wear we see the distinction there Oh, yes. So why don't you explain it for everybody? Okay, I'll keep, I'll keep this pretty simple. Um, okay, okay. Always, um, especially like the very first conversation that I have with a stranger or a potential client, like, I need you to know this about me because there might be misconceptions or assumptions. So they come into the conversation ready to talk about fashion. Like, we can talk about fashion, but I want to introduce you to the distinction between fashion and style. So the way I see fashion is sometimes I call it big fashion. It is, (laughs) yeah, it's the system. It is the rules, quote Mm -hmm. unquote rules. It is the messaging. It is honestly antithetical on an ethical level uh, to what I what I enjoy, what I'm passionate about. Um, it's, it is a, an architecture and infrastructure that is set up to prioritize profit over people Mm -hmm. and style is this whole other open world in which there are no rules. There are no standards or expectations. It is highly personal, highly individualized. And in contrast to, as I described, big fashion, right? It's all Mm -hmm. about the individual. It's all about prioritizing people over profit. Um, It's kind of the the simplest uh, definition, I guess, or distinction I'll share. Uh, But style, to me, like I said, there are no rules. So in this world... Everything is our choice versus in fashion where it's really like a series of manipulation tactics to influence your behavior and inspire you to buy, buy, buy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. In style, at least in my world and in my work, you know, there's, of course, there's a sustainability component, which maybe we'll talk about at some point, but it's really about being thinking critically and intentionally about 
like what you wear as an outward expression and manifestation of who you are internally. It's like creating alignment between those two influences so that how the world sees you is a more re accurate reflection of who you actually are, how you want to be seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that style is so powerful. You know, and it really is so personal. And I think that's why when you hear people who maybe are a little uncomfortable because maybe they haven't been given like the permission to express themselves via what they wear, they'll say things like, oh, I could never wear that, right? Because <laughs> they're rather than understanding that it's their choice to wear it, they're seeing it as this like set of rules that's put in, been put in place by big fashion, which includes mm -hmm. fashion media, right? And oh, all, yes. of, right, all of it, which will tell you, oh, here are six outfits you as an allegedly pear-shaped or banana-shaped person can wear, right? Like we have these rules like, oh, sorry, I am over this age, so I can't wear a miniskirt and I need to chop off my hair and like all of the other bullshit. I saw something last week where someone was like, people over 30 shouldn't wear black eyeliner. <laughs> I was like, oh my what? God. What are we doing here? You know, but like these rules that are grounded in nonsense, you know, all mm -hmm. of the all of the bad things like misogyny and anti-fat bias and racism, ageism, all those things. That's where these rules come from. And all of those bad, bad things are have deep roots within big fashion, but they don't need to be a part of style at all. And they shouldn't be a part of style. Yeah. I, I love what you said about rules, like whatever we have perceived or learned as rules and expectations with respect to, to what we wear, like who created this playbook? Like the answer <sighs> is patriarchy, right? It's like always, it's eight, always the good old know? patriarchy, which is interesting because, yeah. you know, the patriarchy would have you believe that what you wear is dumb and not something mm -hmm. you should think about too much. And if you do, then you're really shallow probably unsmart person whose thoughts aren't important to hear yet at the same time the patriarchy is like btw we have all these rules around what you can and cannot wear yeah you need this to feel complete or like there there's no such thing as enough and like whatever pain you might be experiencing right now here is the solution this new <sighs> capsule collection where you have to buy every single piece right or you know, look out for the the summer sale or the mid-season, post-season sale. Like, yeah, they really, I say they, you know, when I think of the patriarchy, I picture like this <laughs> conference room and it's like six or eight, like just crusty old white dudes, like deciding what's next and what's best for us. That doesn't <laughs> resonate with me at all. Like, you all don't <laughs> care about me. You're, you know, you're... You're trying to leave a legacy for your family. You're trying to get rich before you die. And um, there, there's no place for me there, you know? I mean, I will tell you as a person who has worked in this industry for a very long time that actually the patriarchy really is running the show. Uh, mm -hmm. Like literally, not even figuratively. Every job I've had, primarily the middle management and the rest of the workforce has been female. And the top, the executives are always white men of a certain age. Like yeah. always. My very first buying job, and I've talked about this on the podcast before, 
We all had open seating. In fact, everywhere you work now in fashion, it's open seating, meaning you're all just sitting at tables and no one has any privacy or a chance to concentrate. There's not even cubicles because cubicles aren't stylish, right? <laughs> and so in in my first job and really almost all the other ones after that, you look out in the open seating. There's just tons of people working. They're all women. There's always somewhere in my first job, it was all along one side of the building. There were just offices, right? And the offices for, for the executives. And all the offices were occupied by men, white men, mm-hmm. always, right? And then women doing all the other work out there on the floor. But then we would have these meetings where we would basically be trying to prove to the white men that lived in the offices that we knew what we were doing, that we were smart enough to have that job. It was like we would be in contests to see how much we could please them with how smart we were and good, how good we were at picking up clothes, but also how attractive we were as we were presenting those clothes. And being just like a little flirty, not too much, but enough to make them feel special while we presented our buying strategy to them. Like it, it always felt like being in a weird beauty pageant where you also just had to have a lot of spreadsheets yeah like personality contests like as you were describing this i know that you're talking about like somewhere in the the mid 2010s or whatever right but this sounds (laughs) so much like 1950s madison avenue like are we in an episode of madison right now (laughs) i know i mean I will think about things that happened to me in my career, and they sound like they're from Mad Men. Oh, oh, your boss coming over and rubbing your back while you're sitting at your computer? Yeah. Mm. Like, no, that it wasn't 1980 or 1950. It was 2010. Mm-hmm. Or... Uh, Gosh, I remember at one of my jobs, we had to go through this like merchant development program. And every other week, we would go to like a four hour session that was educational in nature about like, how to use Excel or retail math or what, you know, whatever. And at one of them, the founder of the company came to speak, who is the whitest, oldest, richest man that I've ever been in a room with. And he was talking about how he'd started this company back in the 70s out of business school. And he said this thing like that makes my skin crawl years later. He said, you know, when we realize that the like young women, the important thing when you're dressing girls is like you want them to feel sexy. So if if it's a long shirt, it has to be short in the back so you can see her butt. And if it's a, like a loose shirt, then it needs to be low cut in the front. And like the most important thing is that girls feel sexy. And I just was like, why is this man telling me this? This is patriarchy right here. Mm-hmm. It's all about like, and- oh, BT dubs, all fashion choices should be made with the male gaze in mind. That's exactly what I was going to say. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is so if we've ever asked ourselves or ever wondered out loud, like, where does that internalized male gaze come from? It's like top down. Hello. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, I can look back now and, you know, look at all the years I worked there. I actually went to work for other brands. I went back to that brand much later. And I could see the way the all of these women who were working would treat one another, interact with one another, gossip about one another. And it was all rooted in that male gaze. And it was definitely a company where you couldn't you couldn't even get hired there if you were larger than a size 8. If you did somehow get hired and slip through, 
you would never be promoted. People would not be your friends. No matter how skillful or talented you were, you had to meet this certain measure of beauty and thinness that was required by some unspoken rule at this company that everyone knew, even if they never said it out loud. And that's one place, that's one place in this large industry where it's all happening, you know? Let's take a moment to thank a new supporter of Close Horse, Athletic Greens. They have a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because it's important that I feel as healthy and energized as possible if I'm going to be able to do all the stuff I need to do in a given day, from working my day job to creating Close Horse to reading my ever-growing mountain of books. This means I need a supplement that fits into my life easily and is actually enjoyable to take. I've taken some very unenjoyable supplements. For a while, it seemed like half my suitcase for every business trip was just bottles of vitamins, and AG1 has changed my life because it only takes up a tiny, tiny bit of space in my bag, and I really enjoy taking it. Who says that about a supplement? I have never said that before, but I mean it. I've been on it for a few months now, and I love it. It doesn't taste like it's super healthy. It has a kind of mild tropical with a hint of vanilla taste that I actually look forward to each morning. I'm I'm serious. I, I'm excited to drink it in the morning. So you're probably asking, like, what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all of the things you care about. It's very lifestyle friendly, whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free, or only Taco Bell, AG1 fits for you. It also costs you less than $3 a day. It's way cheaper, trust me, I did the math, than getting all of the different supplements yourself, which I appreciate as a very thrifty person. I also love that I'm skipping all of the plastic packaging ways for all of the supplements I was taking in the past. So many containers. I am not an athlete. When I do work out, it's in very uncool pajamas. But AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits for me. It's one thing I can do every single day to take great care of myself. For every purchase, Athletic Greens donates to organizations helping to get nutritious food to kids in need, including No Kid Hungry here in the United States. In 2020 alone, AG donated over 1.2 million meals to kids. My other vitamins weren't doing anything for anybody else except filling up my suitcase. Right now is a great time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. Shake it up and enjoy it. There's no need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Seriously, the first thing I do every morning, well, first I feed the cats, but then I mix up my scoop of, of AG1 with some water. I shake it up and I sit on the couch and drink it while I listen to NPR and it is delightful. 
To make it easy, because I know you're so jealous, you want to try this now, Athletic Greens is going to offer you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash clotheshorse. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash clotheshorse to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. It's got me thinking about the word flattering, like you mentioned. Oh, sex flattering I, is, yeah. It feels gross in my mouth, um, but I, you know, I've over the last year, I've been really intentional about, like, thinking about what that implies and who it speaks to, you know, and it, it definitely has that male gaze at its root, I think. It's like flattering according to whom. Who are we trying to impress here? Right. Um, but I, I've gone out of my way to just like abolish it entirely from my vocabulary. Like anyone that I work with, any clients that I bring in, like we, we address that. This is, this word is outlawed in, in yeah. my world, right? It's gross. Mm-hmm. It's weird. I don't know why, but the word, <laughs> The word flattering always makes me think of snack wells. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which are disgusting also, but like feel like, you know, as a as like in my late teens it was like uh, or may I can know, late teens s- snack wells were already gone. But let's think more like junior high. In junior high, mm-hmm. snack wells were what you ate if you were an acceptable female. You know what I mean? Like, if you were socially accepted in the world, you had to eat snack wells and not real food. And I feel like flattering is what you have to do to be an acceptable female or acceptable person who is not a white cishet male. That's Mm -hmm. what you have to do is be flattering, right? Although I don't think we talk to men as uh, about wearing flattering clothes, right? I I otherwise think cargo shorts would be less popular. You know, not flattering. If you want my real opinion, they're always hanging too low. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I'm just kidding. If you love your cargo shorts, keep wearing them. But make sure that you have them pulled up the whole way. Because sometimes I'm like, that man, one false move, the shorts are gone. (laughs) Uh, I think it's all the stuff in the pockets, you know? It's dangerous. It's It's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. Don't put that many pockets (laughs) On a garment that doesn't connect the whole way up over your body. It's just too risky. Um, we need an OSHA consultant here. Like, yeah. is this safe? <laughs> I think it needs to be like a cargo one piece. Although it could give you neck and back problems if you overloaded those lower pockets. I don't know. Anyway, we never talk about <laughs> flattering in that way, right? But yet it is something that is like in... I mean, I remember getting all the teen magazines and they would all talk about like, basically, you can wear this, but you can't wear that. But if you have this body, you can wear this, but not that. And it was always like, you know, equating your body type to or shape to that of some sort of fruit or vegetable uh, (laughs) or like it was always like, do you have boobs or not? You know, like that, like the age old quandary of do you have boobs or not, right? (laughs) And what you can wear based on that. And I just think for some of us, it is so deeply ingrained in there that it's going to be a lot of work to free ourselves of that. And I still, even though I know it's bullshit, every once in a while, I'll get in my head about it. So 
I don't know if it's appropriate to share this story, but you were talking about breasts and I happen to have them. They're ample in size, which has always been an interesting challenge for finding clothing solutions. It's true. It is true. Yes. Kind of tying it back to upbringing and personal style and like getting dressed for school. I remember this very specific ringer style t-shirt. It was like Heather Gray with black rings. And I'd had it maybe for a couple of months, but like all of a sudden overnight, I woke up with B cups and Uh I was not prepared. (laughs) So on the front of this shirt was printed the word whatever, you know, very (laughs) cheeky and subversive for like a middle school or late elementary school. And here I am with B cups and it's like the, the letters had stretched, like they were starting to stretch to such a degree. And I just remember being, I mean, chastised at home, of course, like I would stand a certain way. And because I had breasts now, I was accused of calling attention to them. Like there is no hiding these guys, right? They're part of my body. But um, I remember being picked on at school. Like everyone up to that point had complimented the shirt. They were like, oh, that's so haha, whatever, you know. And now all of a sudden I have boobs and like, the message is like literally distorted. Um, yeah. Um, freaking boobs are hard when it comes boobs to clothing. Boobs are hard. So I have, I have a very, it's so visceral. It's like I'm, if I think about this moment, I'm instantly transported there. And it was in 10th grade. So I had this bodysuit. It's already – this is already a dark story. If you know a bodysuit's involved, you know it's about to get wild. I had oh, this, yeah. I had this bodysuit that I had bought on sale at the Express with my babysitting money. So this being from Expressment, it was like a very exciting, luxurious article of clothing for me. Like this was – you know, I probably paid 20 bucks for it, but it felt like it was 200 And it was gray pinstripe, and it had kind of like – the cups on it, but not like rigid ones, but they had like the outline there. There wasn't like, you know, wire or anything in there. But I mean, it was like boob, a boob shirt, except when I (laughs) bought that bodysuit, I had no boobs, you know, like I was wearing a bra just to feel like I was a, you know, womanly in some way or another. Right. Mm -hmm. And I got the body, you know, I wore the bodysuit to school and I remember someone being like, my god like you know who else has that bodysuit but way bigger boobs and it was this girl allison who was a year ahead of me and she walked by in the same bodysuit and she definitely did have much much more ample bosom than me and we both had this mortifying moment where we both covered our chests with our books and walked on i am not kidding you that two weeks later a weird thing happened overnight which is that my boobs came in, if you will, (laughs) but like unbeknownst to me sort of. And so I got up that morning, got dressed, put on that bodysuit, went to school, and I was walking down the hallway like, do-do-do, just a normal day. And I could (laughs) see my friend, Trisha, kind of a friend of me. She was like sort of a mean girl. And one Mm. thing she was hung up on and would talk about every day was like, how she really wanted to get boobs. Like it was like she was doing exercises and push-up bras and researching like how she could possibly grow breasts ASAP. Like whereas for me, I just didn't really care. I had other things to think about. But for her, I mean, we all had that friend who was like, this is like what their their free bandwidth 
is going into thinking about how they're going to get boobs. Oh, yeah. And so she's at the other end of the hallway, and I'm walking towards her, and I see her eyes get really big. And then she had this look on her face that I recognize now as just overwhelming, jealous rage. Oh, no. And she came up to me and was like, well, I don't think you need to brag about them. And I was like, what do you mean? And I, she, she looked down and she was like, I think we both know. And I think you should go put on a jacket. <sighs> and that was the day my boobs arrived. <laughs> and there they were. <laughs> There's no turning back. I mean, we can invest in minimizer bras if we want, whatever, but like. They're there. They're a part of us. And just by existing does not mean like we're a walking advertisement or like there's any conscious like showing it off. It's just that's internalized male gaze, too. Like, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. No, oh. it's it's so gross. And I uh, I definitely I think that that moment really lived with me for a very long time. And I would wear a sports bra or two sports bras well into my 20s. Yeah. Like, just to, like, you know, not offend anybody with my bosom, you know? <laughs> um, but I think, like, never have there been more style rules than there are for the covering and sheathing of breasts, right? <laughs> uh, I saw a post on LinkedIn. This has been a couple months back and it was um, a cisgender white woman and her question was just like, you know, warning, this is spicy. This is going to get spicy. She's like, um, do you consider cleavage, exposed cleavage, any level of it professional or unprofessional? And of course, there's, you know, a, a litany of dudes, like immediately, like, this is what I think. And I just, it was puzzling. So I was like, how is this even a question? Like our bodies exist, right? Regardless of what clothing we put on, like there are some bodies, especially larger bodies, right? Mm -hmm, Where they, mm -hmm. there's a lot going on up top. It doesn't matter what you wear. There's going to be, you know, cleavage of some kind. Like, I just thought the question was in poor taste, and I thought the direction of the conversation was kind of dangerous and backsliding a little bit. I mean, people get wild on LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. Like, I can't believe I'm saying that, but the things I've seen on LinkedIn in the past year or so, I'm like, guys, this isn't Facebook. If you want to be horrible, go do it on Facebook where people go mm -hmm. to do those things, you know? Shit, I just realized. Okay, so the lead, like the first sentence was, "I let's talk about melons. Like she didn't <gasps> even use on the anatomical Yes. <laughs> like, hold on. What is unprofessional here? Yeah. Wait, and did she work uh. in HR? Because it's always like HR people getting real crazy over there. I honestly, I didn't bother. I kind of, it was like next after I saw that. I spent oh. a few minutes like just processing. This is probably me, probably not someone with whom I want to be associ associated. So, well, yeah. and we know, you know, like for example, I think this is a great segue into this idea of like professional, professional clothing, which is probably, I think, as an adult, probably the place where most of us encounter the most rules. 
mm-hmm. around what we're allowed to wear. And I know this gets into dodgy territory because I understand to a certain extent why dress codes exist in offices, banks, etc. Because they want like a very professional, polished look. The problem is that a lot of these ideas around professionalism and dress codes when it comes to our clothing really often stigmatize larger people, people who aren't white, people who aren't cisgender, people who have large breasts. I mean, like, that's, Mm -hmm. like, I was talking to someone the other day who was telling me how they had had to send an employee home for wearing low-cut shirts, and I sort of, I kind of wanted to, like, fight with them about it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Because, like, sometimes uh, what doesn't appear to be a low-cut shirt is very low-cut, depending on the shape of your body, right? Exactly. Um, And there's this idea that, like, our bodies must be hidden away in order to be professional. And, like, I get you want your work, your team at work to be clean and clothed practically. And, like, there are many jobs in which what you wear would keep you safe. Like, I understand why you need to wear closed-toed shoes in a warehouse, right? Yeah, exactly. Like, PPE... Like, I get these things, right? Yeah. But, like, just tell me exactly why having my arms uncovered is going to be, like, just ruin the business. Exactly. And if if I'm interfacing with the public at a desk and they can't actually see anything below my waist, what does it matter if my skirt or my pants or whatever, like, hit X X number of inches below the knee in a seated position? Like, I... No one's ever going to see my legs. What are you talking about? Maybe well, it, it's like it's patriarchy, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're you're distracting your male coworkers, just exactly. like we feared in school. You know, you're. Um, it's always the the females and the students who are socialized as female, right, that get mm-hmm, called mm-hmm. to task on that. It's our problem to fix. It's not about training, you know, our our male students to mind their own fucking business you know yeah i remember there was there was a thing at my high school where you couldn't wear a shirt where your bra straps were visible mm-hmm. and i just i still to this day i'm like yeah people wear bras like what what's the problem <laughs> you know <laughs> like especially you know growing bodies in high school are wearing bras yet we have to hide that like are we just are we i guess we're also gonna like hide and stigmatize menstruation puberty as a whole who knows what oh, else yeah. of course we are right yeah it's all part of that package but i this is where these style rules begin i mean they go back even earlier to when your parents like have to choose between whether they're going to put you in pink or blue clothing oh you know? yes uh, when it comes to dress codes like all of that is so highly gendered and as as we're coming to accept and embrace as a as western culture specifically like that gender is a spectrum in a professional context. You have a dress code that says, okay, this is what men wear and this is what women wear. But we know that men and women are not the only kind of people that we're going to encounter at work. So where does that leave everyone else? Right. And right. Why couldn't a man wear a dress if he wants? <laughs> you know? Because they're more comfortable. They sh- everyone should be allowed to wear a dress if they want. Yes. 
I highly recommend it. Yeah, way more comfortable than a pair of pants. Everyone free. Everyone in a tunic ASAP. Let's do it. You know, I in the future, it's like a tunic wardrobe. I just know it. Um, <laughs> tunics for all. Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. And that's Gabriella with one L. Gotta get that spelling right. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. 
Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage, creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. High Energy Vintage is a fun and funky vintage shop located in Somerville, Massachusetts, just a few minutes away from downtown Boston. They offer a highly curated selection of bright and colorful clothing and accessories from the 1940s to the 1990s for people of all genders. Husband and wife duo Wiley and Jessamy handpick each piece for quality and style with a focus on pieces that transcend trends and will find a home in your closet for many years to come. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagabond Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing, accessories, and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on Instagram at Vagabond Vintage DTLV and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022. This idea of rules and policing our bodies and our identities via clothing uh, really leads can lead to a lot of trauma related to clothing. And I know that this is something that you are an expert in. Um, yes. <laughs> it feels good to hear that, to be acknowledged and validated on that level. Um, yeah, I've... I've experienced a great deal of trauma in my life. Um, and as I think about those experiences, I think it's primarily because I had such a close and deep relationship with clothing and style that like the traumatic moments that occurred, those events that occurred in those contexts are mm -hmm. more vivid than, than some of the other experiences. But I also have come to notice, especially as I've been working in this field for a couple of years and had an opportunity to work with all kinds of people, right? All body types, all mm -hmm. gender expressions, that I'm not the only one who has experienced this really specific kind of trauma. Um, I've referred to it as wardrobe and shopping trauma. So it's not it's not shopping for groceries. When I say shopping, it's specifically <laughs> in like a clothing acquisition context, right? Right, it's, right. It's back to school or we don't have the financial resources at all to support. So it's hand-me-downs and we're going to garage sales and things like that. Uh, but 
you know, based on my own experiences and observations with clients, it's not even just a singular type of wardrobe and shopping trauma. There are like subtypes. Um, there are four of them that I've identified so far. Perhaps that list will grow, um, but they're they're very specific. And if you're interested, I'd love to share. I'm kind of yeah, a, no, I a nerd I think, on the topic. I think that this is really, I think a lot of people listening to this are going to see themselves in what you're about to share. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really appreciate that. Um, so we're talking wardrobe and shopping trauma. We know that trauma in general describes disturbing experiences, right? That, you know, no matter when or where they happen in our lives can have an impact well into, you know, decades later, right? If it happens in childhood, it haunts you through adulthood or can. Um, so the four types of wardrobe and shopping trauma that I've identified so far are chronological, circumstantial, financial, and hypercritical. And of course, these are all intersectional. Chances are if you've experienced one kind, you've also experienced another kind, either at the same time or in a, in a different traumatic event. Um, but it, it's all about, like I said, the, the relationship with clothes, uh, but also the surrounding environment and influences. So in the context of chronological wardrobe and shopping trauma, there's like a sense of urgency or some sort of time bound element where like the first example that comes to mind is the back to school shopping. There's a very specific time mm -hmm. of year, likely late summer, early fall. So you know that that's coming for some people, for a lot of us growing up, that was like the one time that you might've gotten new items for your wardrobe, even if they were used, they're new to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's also once you're in the environment, like you're in a store or a thrift shop or garage sale, whatever, it's like, okay, hurry up. We don't have time to like really care about this at any great level. Mm -hmm. And especially for someone who loves clothing, having that pressure, you know, I'm, I'm also neurodiverse. So my concept of time is pretty skewed and having anyone tell me to hurry up, right? What's taking oh, me so gosh, long? Oh gosh, it gives me so much anxiety instantly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, it's really tough. Um, circumstantial, the circumstantial subtype is as the name implies, it like relates to a specific event. Um, a couple of things that come to mind are like catastrophic, like natural, you know, whether natural disasters or something like that, maybe you have a house fire or it's this specific isolated event, you're in attendance at a wedding or, um, it's just, it's really unique and it's based on circumstances versus like there, there may be the chronological time bound element as well, but it's kind of like that. Um, really isolated one-off thing that happens, not recurring, that's happened mm -hmm. one time and just, you know, has that lasting impact. Um, financial is probably the most obvious one. Mm -hmm. You know, it can be 
certainly it speaks to our shared history and experience, Amanda, where we're coming from limited financial resources, right? So it's Mm -hmm. the element of money. It could be the absence of those resources, but it also can touch on shopping addiction where it's like money is no object, right? Mm -hmm. And we're trying to, to fill a void and in that activity or in that, um, behavior, we're actually causing trauma in our lives. Um, you know, there's the shopping addiction and that experience, but there's also acknowledging it, how it impacts your family. Maybe you lose your house because you're in a mountain of debt over, you know, your clothing shopping addiction, you know, you're addicted to Instagram ads and just can't stop yourself. Um, it's true. Hyper hypercritical is, I would say it's the one that I personally experienced the most and what I hear the majority of my clients sharing, which is it's a kind of generational trauma. It's really where any, any time you're getting dressed or you're thinking about clothes or sharing about your body or how you look in a specific outfit, you're met with instant judgment and criticism, either about mm-hmm. your body, the clothes that you're wearing. Um, it can happen when you're in school. Like, I think that's probably a shared experience across like, our entire, let's say, middle school, yeah. high school experience, right? Um, and a lot of these traumas happen, like, within our most safe and sacred spaces, which makes them even more um, impactful and hurtful in the long term. Um, you know, we're, we're all familiar with the concept of an internal monologue, right? Mm-hmm. One of the questions that I ask my clients is like, when you're getting ready for work in the morning, you're getting dressed to go out with your friends, like whose voice do you hear in your head? And a lot of times it is those, you know, those influences, those voices that said those hurtful things to you as a child or, you yep. know, um, as a young adult or whatever, whenever it happened, right? Trauma can happen at any time. Um, but it's, it's interesting. It's like that internal monologue becomes this weird kind of composite of all those really negative and critical influences. That's like the, the soundtrack to our trauma, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's interesting that, I mean, I can think of all of these times in which, specifically in school, but also outside of school, where someone made me feel bad about what I was wearing and how those feelings I still think of, you know, I still think of those moments as an adult. Mm -hmm. And why is it that we think of those people and not the people who said, wow, you look really great today? (laughs) Like, why is it the mean people who come back to visit us in our memories? Why is that? I don't know. I wish I had an answer for that. Because, I mean, I, like, there was this guy who I went, I grew up with. His name was Gary Duke. And I'm going to say his full name here because he deserves to be called out for being an asshole. (laughs) And he, like, 
in when we were in seventh grade, which what is that? Like you're like 12 in seventh grade, maybe turning 13. He -hmm. drove to school. So he was older than us. He'd been held back a few years. I'm sure he had all kinds of problems at home. I can't even imagine, like, you know, probably not having a great life. But he would stand outside my homeroom every morning and be like, good morning, ugly, when I walked by. And I felt... I guarantee that Gary Duke hasn't spent one moment of his adult life thinking about me. But every once in a while, I'll be like, God, why was Gary Duke Duke so mean to me? I wish I would have had a comeback for him. You know? Mm. (sighs) It's unfair that it works that way. I remember, like, when I'm thinking about elementary school, middle school, I, through those years, for the majority of the time, I had, like, a bowl cut. kind of. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) DIY. bowl cut yeah i started yeah. i started kind of of course I'm a, I'm a natural blonde as well so i think this was about third grade um as ellen degeneres was becoming popular but hadn't yet come out mm-hmm. um yeah i remember people the kids right kids picking on me and saying you remind me of ellen and i remember feeling like really like that was a compliment because she's hilarious and I, you know, she's right. a beautiful person, but that, that carried through, right? Like again, small town, Kentucky, super Oof, ignorant, yeah. really conservative. Once she came out and they, they continued to, to use that analogy to describe me and pick on me. It was like, okay, so you're obviously equating a short haircut to lesbianism and like I, I don't have a problem with this, but I know that you're framing this as an insult. Like you're trying to hurt me, right? Um, yeah, I'll, ne- I'll never forget that. You look like Ellen. You remind me of Ellen. And I was like, oh, that's so awesome. Because she's right? so I'm funny. Like, Thank you. Yeah, and yes. famous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that is like for me, it was it was a struggle because I was an extreme late bloomer. I had cancer when I was a small child and it it just sort of set me back a few years in terms of growing. So even Mm -hmm. by the time I'd reached high school, I still had to wear children's size clothing and I didn't really grow into my full like adult size until I was in college. And in elementary school, it didn't matter that I was wearing kids clothes because like so was everybody else, right? But I Mm -hmm. do remember getting this dress that I loved and wearing it to school in sixth grade and this girl being like, you look like a baby, what are you, a baby? And I felt so embarrassed. And it started, and I love that dress. It had, like, all these ruffles on it that were black and white striped. And honestly, if I had that dress right now, I'd wear I know it was so good. Puff and sleeves? That's to- what I'm yeah, in my exactly. mind. Oh, yeah, it was yes. amazing. It's, like, basically how I dress as an adult now. But it took me a yes. long time to get there and just be that person. And it really set in motion just, oh, so many traumatic shopping trips where it was it was inevitably like you know back to school like you were saying because that was one of the only times we ever went shopping for clothing unless there was some really important like someone was getting married or we had to go to a funeral kind of thing coming up and so I remember being on all of these back to school shopping trips really wanting to be able to wear adult sized clothing not being able to crying be like I remember being in the 
I don't even know what we were doing there, but we were in the express in like eighth or ninth grade and I was trying on clothes. And of course, all the pants were like six, eight inches too long for me. And <laughs> the wom- the sales clerk, I mean, she was trying to be helpful, right? But it was not what I needed to hear. She was like, have you ever heard of Limited 2? You should go there. And I just like had a meltdown, you know, Um I, I couldn't go wear, get children's clothes to go to school. And so there was definitely like a, a several year period there where ju- even though I loved clothes, the act of going to get clothes was just excruciating for me. Because it was like, one, we weren't going to be able to afford what I wanted in the first place. But then yeah. also my body was wrong for what I wanted. So many of us have had this experience in one way or another that – it's no wonder that so many people become adults and don't feel comfortable shopping or picking out clothes for themselves. They just, they, they won't, they can't, they can't let themselves. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I've entered into this field and like fully owned it and embraced it. And like, I find that a lot of this work in the very early stages is about granting permission. And it's kind of weird to say that because I'm like, I'm not the authority here in your life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not here to tell you what to wear, but I want to create a space where you can kind of, you can unpack all that shit from the past, first of all. We're going to analyze it critically and figure out like, it, what if anything that you've experienced is useful for moving forward? And a lot of times, like it's granting permission to just let that shit go. Like we're going to start from scratch. If there are going to be any rules here, you get to write them for yourself. Like what if every single thing that you thought was inaccessible to you, you could have? Like what if you could wear all of these things, right? Which um, you can. You can. You can. Exactly. But I think it is true. I think that between the rules that we've been exposed to and the critics in our lives who also have been exposed to these rules, we don't feel free to wear what we want anymore. We don't feel like we get to choose. It's almost like this is a uniform. Find the one that's the least uncomfortable for you and wear it. Yeah, or the one, the one that um, makes it easy to hide your body in, right? Like, makes you blend into the background so as to not draw attention. Like, yeah, it's it's so upsetting. I say upsetting. I'm just, like, I'm really passionate about this. And I think if there's any problem in the world that I want to solve, like, I feel like I'm equipped to solve, this is what I want to address for people, right? I want everyone to feel that power and joy and freedom, but also alignment, like knowing that the choices that you make from the point of purchase to like curating, you know, styling the actual outfit, those are your choices. You get to own Mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. No one else has a say, right? I want that for everyone. I really do. It must feel just like such a relief. It must feel so good for your clients. <laughs> you know? I'm I'm thinking about one right now that literally in the last week, it was after our um, 
you know, pre-conversation, pre-podcast conversation. She messaged me on Instagram with a photo of her wearing a crop top for the first time <gasps> in her life. And I'm telling you, like, she had sent me photos before, right? I want to see what you consider every day. I also want to see what you consider is your best. Like, give me, give me a peek into, like, what your style is right now. So I'm mm-hmm. looking at these old photos and they're great. I mean, she's a beautiful person and the, the clothes weren't wrong or, you know, there was nothing inherently wrong with them. But the look on her face when she's wearing that crop top, I'm t- she looked like a totally different person. She was smiling. <laughs> it was like all teeth, all joy. And even as I'm telling you right now, it's like, it's hard not to get choked up. I've got goosebumps all over my body because that is the jam. She came to me and said, there are all these things that I've wanted my entire life to try. A romper, a jumpsuit, a crop top, and I'm terrified, right? Like, okay, I'm, I'm here to create space for that fear and we're going to talk through that. And I'm going to challenge you to just see what it's like. Just do it and see what happens. And she did. And she was like, I'm in love. It's, it's, she was like, it's more than like, I can't even describe it. And I've, I've come to recognize this specific, like, sensation as style euphoria. It is like, <laughs> so you, this is like, this is your moment. Can't nobody tell you shit. Like, this is, look at you. There you are, you know? It's yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know this feeling. I think even, you know, for me, despite working, for all of these years in fashion, I never really felt like I got to wear what I wanted to wear. I wore what I thought I was supposed to wear because that Mm. was what was on trend or would make me look like I was good at my job or would make me stand out, but not too much, like that kind of thing. What was flattering, Mm -hmm. all of that bullshit. And Mm. when I lost my job at the beginning of the pandemic, it was suddenly like, wait, you're telling me I can wear whatever I want (laughs) anytime. (laughs) And not feel weird about it. And it was like, I cannot even begin to describe how free and happy and comfortable I felt, even though, you know, I was still getting dressed up every day and wearing a dress and, you know, like not comfortable, like, oh, I'm wearing sweatpants, but like Mm -hmm. emotionally comfortable for the first time in my entire life. That's it's the power everything. of what you wear. That's the power of what you wear. Yes. I I don't know if you know this about me. Um, some listeners may be aware of this, but I I fixated on this like favorite outfit from childhood. It was I think it was my preschool school picture. Um, and it was like this um, crop top. It's made out of like a cotton jersey sweatshirt type of material. I had little biker shorts with a little peplum ruffle and it was covered in like these neon puff paint splatters, right? It was rocking. And now I I would not wear that exact same thing today, (laughs) but I remember how I felt in that outfit. I remember Mm -hmm. picking it out that day and I ended up like one of, one of the coolest things I've ever done for myself style wise was to consult with a designer and have her, reimagine that outfit for like me as I am today fully owning and embracing my personal style and 
she she hand paint splattered the sweatshirt fabric and there's a little sweetheart detail and it's a crop <gasps> crop sweatshirt and matching joggers and I put it on and I was like like I, I mean I went out to a public park like the state park and did a photo shoot by myself I was like I don't care who sees me I want <laughs> them to like have you ever like you don't even know how good this feels right now it was just it was incredible it was like capturing that essence and joy and just like feeling myself before the weight of other people's expectations set in and just like reclaiming that you know um and into adulthood like in that context was super super powerful yeah, yeah. i mean i can't believe it i'm like tearing up thinking about it because i know that feeling and it is it is life-changing and once again when people are like oh, clothes are stupid or if you care about clothes, you're shallow or, you know, I don't know, somehow inferior as a person. The reality is that clothes do have a major impact on how we feel in the day-to-day. And and those of us who are really, really into expressing ourselves through our personal style, I would say that, like, every day that we get up and get dressed, we're making decisions about who we want to be that day. Mm-hmm. And cannot understate, like, the power of that and how, like, in, in how your day goes, you know? I, 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 I'm sad that that has been ruined by just, just, like, steady flow of meaningless clothing. It's like we're going full circle back to the lost art of clothing copy mm-hmm. because – there's so much of it, and we're not supposed to be connected to it for very long because if we are, then we won't buy more. And so right. it's like we're being robbed of of that magic, of that power, because a lot of the clothes aren't going to stand up to many wears. They're not going to fit us well, and so they're going to make us already feel less than we are. And in that case, probably lead us to buy more stuff to feel better. And I can't help, I mean, you and I talked about planned obsolescence a little bit when the first time we talked. And I feel like, I mean, planned obsolescence is like one, things not lasting intentionally, like literally not lasting intentionally, like built to break like an iPhone. But it's also this psychological obsolescence where you're going to move on from something pretty fast to the next thing, right? And it's that's that's where we are with clothes because they so many of them that are out there aren't going to make us feel great. We're not going to feel bad wearing it once and replacing it with something else. And when we're not feeling great and we don't get to have that feeling that you have when you put on your paint splatter outfit, when we don't get to have that feeling from anything we buy – we just keep buying more until we find it, and we might never. And I think that's that's part of that because all of us had that outfit when we were a kid. For me, I had these electric blue jeans, and I had a sweatshirt that had a teddy bear on it. It said "Bear in the USA," and I used to, <laughs> I used to. These were like pretty, like skinny jeans. I would wear all these socks layered over. My jeans in like four colors that would match back to my sweatshirt. And I had a fancy belt and I would wear a hat with it. And it was like, it was, I would put that on and I was like, this is going to be the best day of school this week, you know? (laughs) And we are robbed of that in the fast fashion era. Yeah. You know, you've mentioned trends a couple of times and we didn't, 
we didn't talk about this when we were comparing fashion and style, but trends like that, that whole concept is something that I reject entirely, you know, and this is, this ties Mm -hmm. into sustainability, I guess, in a broader context, like you might change your mind over time. You know, we all kind of go through. Yeah. 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 We go through phases, let's say, especially in, you know, childhood development and into adulthood. But also, like, do you ever really grow bored with something? Or is it like external influences saying what Mm. you have isn't good enough? Here's something better, faster, shiny, more efficient, you know, whatever on sale. Like, I, I always challenge the client to start with what they own, right? What are your favorite pieces? When I mm-hmm. talk about building a capsule wardrobe, it's not for, I mean, it can be for a season or a specific mood or like vacation destination, but I want to challenge you to create a collection of all of your favorite, only your favorite things, Right? What would that be like if everything that you put on every single day just like made you feel like a total badass, right? Yeah. And, you, and that yeah. can happen. That is a real thing. That is a real thing. Um, I don't leave the house that often anymore because I don't have to. I work from home a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still like put on something that makes me feel pretty good, like down to work and comfortable and like good. But when I'm leaving to go somewhere, I get like so dressed up every time. And I have this like small assortment of like my 100% favorite outfits that I wear over and over again every week when I like go on a trip or go to the grocery store or go out to dinner or whatever. And like that is the best. Anyone who hasn't experienced that, like you need to call Maggie right now and get some (laughs) help because it is like a present you give yourself. It's amazing. Yeah, um, it's amazing. And, you know, we've we've talked about standards and rules and all of that, like this notion of rewearing something or being like seen in the same thing. When we were young, it was like, ah, taboo. You know, you don't want to, don't want to go to prom and encounter someone who has. The oh same my god! On. It's like, like that awful. fear. I have talked about this with other people. It is a fear (laughs) that is like drilled into you. Like one of the worst moments of your life is going to be if someone else wears the same prom dress as you. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Thanks, movies. (laughs) I am, you know, I'm of the mind. Like I've said this to clients. Like if you want to wear a fucking prom dress to the grocery store, I want to like empower you to do that. I want to cheer you on. Like, do that. Why? Right. Why not? Right? There are no rules here. Um, yeah, wear a ball gown to the post office. Who cares? You know, if it makes you feel amazing, lean into that. Absolutely, know? absolutely. Do what makes you feel good. Like, listen, life is hard, right? Uh, <laughs> it gets. It kind of never stops being hard in one way or another. And there is so, I mean, we live in a really scary time in a really scary world right now. Like, give yourself some joy by wearing what you love and not what other people told you you could or could not wear. Yeah. It's It's like that simple. (laughs) It's simple. I will say, too, it takes some work, right? Because we're not accustomed to feeling like 
there are endless options available, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the work comes in the unlearning and the unpacking. But once you're free of that, once you really acknowledge and give yourself permission, there's, I mean, there's, there's nothing stopping you. And it is so powerful. It is like an unbelievable joy to witness someone experiencing these feelings in their clothes and this power and just like feeling authentic, you know, mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. they made those choices. They feel themselves, you know, um, it's a game changer. I mean, it, is. it is something so small. Like when you're looking at the grand scheme of things, it is a complex time to be in the world but you know it, it's worth it it's it's a form of self-care right um it it's is. self-advocacy it it's is all the things yeah absolutely style is all of these things big fashion is none of them that's right well maggie i had such an awesome time talking to you today and i'm just gonna go ahead and tell everyone that you're gonna come back for halloween <gasps> oh <laughs> My, my favorite holiday. The most important years. holiday, okay? <laughs> oh my gosh. Thank you. I am so freaking excited about that. Me me too. Me too. Um, do you have for this conversation any final words of wisdom, thoughts, the thing you want everybody to think about when they're done listening to this? Or are you like, no, I said it all. That's fine too. <laughs> I, I think I would just emphasize kind of re-emphasize and double down on what we've covered which is like I know people who are listening right now might feel like this is you know style is not accessible to them or they don't have any concept of what their personal style is right or maybe they feel like I'm not really sure if that's worth exploring like do it just do it take a chance right um I'm here as a resource. I would love to support you. It's not about me, right? I want you to do this for you. I want everyone of all, like I said, all body types, all gender expressions, any profession, whoever you are, whatever your background, I want you to have this experience, to be able to experience joy in your clothes. And it's absolutely possible. Um, so give yourself permission, take a chance and see what happens. Um, I don't think you'll regret it. Yes, I agree. I agree. Make yourself a mood board. Get outside. Get out of your body. Get out of yourself and just look at things that you like and think about putting yourself into them, you know? Like the rules, delete the rules from your brain. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Maggie. Thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate this opportunity and I am so excited about Halloween. (laughs) Me too. If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy 
that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment. I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New vintage is released every Thursday at wearstevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Country Feedback is a mom-and-pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul, and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family-friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand dyed yarns and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand knit, crocheted or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at Republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicware, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and dead stock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicware in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicware recently moved to rural North Carolina, where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. Their customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnicware offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at Cute Little Ruin. 
The Pewter Thimble is a curated secondhand shop based out of Rome, Italy. Owner Desiree Marie Townley has a background in costuming and makeup for dance and opera and focuses on dressing for the character you want to be in the world. Curated collections are dropped in a story sale and always have a specialized theme like the color palette of Starry Night, the film classic Casablanca, and the children's novel The Secret Garden. Desiree works with local artisans and pieces are rescued from markets and rehabilitated and resold with worldwide shipping. The Pewter Thimble is a collection of pieces that will have eternal style from the eternal city. Discover more on Instagram at the Pewter Thimble. Thank you again to Maggie for taking the time to talk to me. I had such an incredible time. I wish that Maggie lived down the street from me so we could just chat like this every day. Maggie will be back for our second annual Clothes Horse Saves Halloween episode. I can't wait. Where we are going to want to hear from you about your favorite costumes created from stuff you already own. So more details are going to be coming on that very soon. It's kind of wild to think that Halloween's not really that far away. (laughs) This year is going way too fast. In the meantime, please give Maggie a follow on Instagram where you'll find her as at GreenStyleMags. And please do yourself a favor, check out her incredible blog at MaggieGreenStyle.com where she explores wardrobe trauma. And I'm going to share that link in the show notes. She'll also tell you what to wear to the gynecologist because yes, it will make the difference. You know, it's never a fun time. Make it a better time, right? She has another really great blog post. I mean, there are many, but one that I loved was what she has learned from 25 plus years of violating dress codes. So please go check all that out. It's linked in the show notes. There's just one last thing I want to cover before I end this episode, and it actually ties into all of this. It's it, it's strange how so many different events, conversations, moments in your life will end up being all tied together as if they were a script that someone wrote for a film or, you know, a novel. Last week was my birthday, and yeah, I did get COVID for my birthday. But between my birthday and my symptoms of COVID, Dustin and I drove down to the Gulf of Mexico and spent the weekend camping in our RV near the beach, and it was so great. We rode our bikes around town. I saw lots of great birds. I cannot recommend the Merlin app enough if you're into birds like I am. We laughed so many times until we were crying. I mean, it was it was just a really great weekend. But on the way down to the Gulf, we stopped in a town called Lockhart so Dustin could do a quick work Zoom meeting. We found a cafe there. Dustin ran back to the corner table to jump into his meetings, and I ordered some coffee for us. And so far, pretty normal story here, right? Well, There were two women right, like, this is a tiny cafe, and they were sitting in a little table right by the counter. They were having a conversation that was unfortunately as loud as it was cruel and bigoted. I I won't repeat what they were saying, but it was super transphobic, and... One of their targets was non-binary people because it was just something that they could not understand or respect. I've turned that moment over and over in my brain for the past week or so, wishing that I could travel back in time and say something to them. I think I fantasized about confronting them, throwing coffee at them, handing them some informational brochures that don't exist. I don't know. I don't know what I thought I was going to do there, but I know this is a feeling a lot of you can relate to. The whole conversation just, 
It made me sick. It made me it made me scared. It made me just so so sad and hopeless. Instead, what I did is I gave them a really hard look. I'm not sure they noticed. And then I hid back in the corner with Dustin, stewing with rage and despair. (sighs) You know, I never thought of myself as a brave person until I started working on Clothes Horse. I knew I was a strong person, but brave, I mean, that's, that's a big word, right? If anything, for most of my life, I've wanted to attract as little attention as possible because that just that just feels safer. But over the past two plus years, I, I've wrangled with trolls and mean influencers, bad comments and DMs, you name it. I've had really intense conversations both here on the podcast and on social media that I would have never felt empowered to have in the past. And I've realized that I am a brave person. I am a brave person with a tiny bit of a platform that does have an impact on the way others think about things. I like to think that I've changed some minds out there or at the very least helped others realize how brave and powerful they are, which is a pretty big deal. And so I think it's important that I speak up when I can, where I can, about things that are important to me that I share my truest self whenever I can because it it does have impact on others. I have silently struggled with my gender, this idea of being a woman, a girl, a lady for my entire life. I can see that for those who know me IRL, that might be surprising because I'm always wearing a dress. I have super long hair. I love Hello Kitty and glittery eyeshadow and pink, all of these cliche trappings of femininity. But it's important to say for all of us to know that taste is not gendered. Aesthetics are personal choices that should not be tied to a gender binary. I always knew that I wasn't a man, but I felt strange as a woman too. Even after dating people of all genders, of having a child of my own, being a woman always felt foreign. Like my brain didn't agree. It's like the shape of my mind didn't fit into this woman's body. But I would argue with myself about it. Like, well, you must be a woman because you hate wearing pants. As if, you know, pants are the true signifier of gender, right? Five or six years ago, around the time Dustin and I got married, I was really really thinking about this a lot on like just on a daily basis and and maybe that was because my relationship didn't feel gendered in the way every other relationship I've ever had has felt maybe maybe it's because of the first time I felt safe and loved and cared for and this was these were all novel feelings for me it was around that time that I made the very silent decision that I would no longer force myself to feel, at least privately, tied to any gender identity, or at least no binary gender identity. I'm a people pleaser, so it felt like too much to share this decision with others. Like somehow changing up the pronouns they used with me would be too much work for them. I I don't know. It it's nonsense. I I get it, but That's my nature, and yes, I'm working on it. This year, I was empowered 
and inspired by a lot of people in my life, including my non-binary child, Dylan, to finally ease into very slowly shifting those in my life to start using she, they pronouns with me. It's in my Slack profile at work. I get introduced at professional events with those pronouns. And and you know what? It's just this, it's just this like small thing, or it would seem small. It makes me feel like my true self for the first time ever. Truly comfortable in my skin. I changed the close horse Instagram profile a few months ago to she they pronouns. I didn't say anything. I don't I don't know if I'll ever make the full transition to they them, mostly because there's something I don't know, like comfortable and familiar about keeping she in the mix, like a childhood nickname or something. My feelings on that might change with time. I know for other non-binary people, that is like not an option. And I understand that as well. I guess I just felt like this was something to share with all of you because maybe some of you are feeling the same way or you noticed my pronouns in my Instagram profile and you wondered Or maybe there's someone else in your life who's experiencing the same feelings as me. I would never have shared this two or three years ago. There's no way I would have done this at my last job. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine what would have happened there. People would have laughed at me. People would have been mean to me. That's what would have happened. Even though I suppose that's illegal, that wouldn't have stopped them. It's not illegal to be mean to people, I guess, or laugh about them behind their backs. Anyway, that was then. But now I feel brave, which is an incredibly delicious state of being. And it's thanks thanks to all of you for listening to Close Horse, for supporting Close Horse, for being a part of my life week after week and letting me be a part of your life week after week. It's, It's made me brave. It's given me the chance to feel this way. And I... I am so grateful. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to another episode of Close Horse, written, researched, hosted, edited, all the things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or do neither and just recommend this podcast to a friend. That's actually probably more impactful when I really think about it. If you'd like to support my work here on Close Horse, you can go check out patreon.com slash close horse podcast. And thanks as always to my other half, Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. And one last thing, I'm just gonna throw this in here uh, for all of you who listen all the way to the end. The department is coming back in September, probably mid to late September, but I know some of you have been missing it. And uh, we've got a pretty good series planned. So stay tuned for that. All right. That's all I've got. Uh, Bye.